Who gets to go to heaven? What are the admission requirements to be with God eternally in heaven? I'm sure over the years you've heard a multiplicity of different understandings or interpretations or criteria of what allows a soul to be with God forever in heaven. One thing we do know is some souls go and some souls do not. Today in the parable that Jesus gives us, there are ten bridesmaids. Five are admitted to the wedding banquet, to heaven, and five are left out. The door is shut on five of them. So who gets to go to heaven? When I talk to people about this in the life of faith, Catholics, usually people tend to one extreme or another when they expressing their idea or their understanding about who goes to heaven. The first, which is the most common nowadays, is that pretty much everybody's going to go to heaven. As long as you're not a bad person, then you're going to go to heaven because God is all loving and he wants everybody to be with him. And so as long as you don't do anything really wrong, you're probably going to go to heaven. But when we stop and think about that thoroughly, this almost guarantee of getting into heaven, what about the atheist? who doesn't even entertain the idea of God, let alone want to be with God, if God just takes them because they lived an okay life, that they didn't do anything really bad in their life, is that really respecting their freedom to choose to be with God? Or how about the desire for God? People who don't have any desire for God in their life the desire to be with him, to be loved by him. We call those people agnostics that have some sense or some idea that a God probably exists, maybe, maybe not, but regardless if he exists or not, doesn't really impact my day-to-day -day life, so I'll just go about my life the way that I want. If somebody has no desire for God, why would they be taken up into heaven? It's almost like the idea that to get to heaven is like getting a participation ribbon. That as long as you show up, doesn't matter if you try or not, but if you just show up and you don't break the rules, then you're gonna be admitted. The other extreme that people tend to less often is, is anybody gonna go to heaven? If perfection, being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is the requirement to be in heaven, then is anybody going to be in heaven besides the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary? Because how do we become perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect? That my merits, the way that I live my life and all of my thoughts, words, and actions, my choices are the only thing that makes me suitable for heaven or not. But then you ask yourself the question, what does God have anything to do with that idea of salvation? When you think about heaven that way, then the only way that I can go to heaven is by my efforts, my abilities. And neither of these are the Catholic understanding of who goes to heaven. The reality is more this perfect tension between those two. And this is part of the reason why Catholic funerals are so important and so beautiful. Because if you listen to the prayers that are prayed at a Catholic funeral, 
it holds in tension these two extremes. This assurance that we will be with God in heaven because he wants us to be, and he's given us every grace that we could need to be there. But at the same time, the realization that we need his mercy because we can't get there ourselves, that no matter how good we are in our life, we can't earn heaven. We need the gift of his mercy. So what I'm going to do this morning, just to kind of give you an example, share with you again the prayer of commendation, which I'm sure many of you have heard many times before. But this is the prayer that the priest prays near the end of the funeral mass, where he is commending the soul of the deceased to God. And listen how in the very prayer itself, it holds these two things in tension. And just for the example, I'm going to use Jane as the deceased. Here's what the priest prays. Into your hands, Father of mercies, we commend our sister Jane in the sure and certain hope that together with all who have died in Christ, she will rise with him on the last day. We give you thanks for the blessings which you bestowed upon Jane in this life. They are signs to us of your goodness and our fellowship with the saints in Christ. Merciful Lord, turn toward us and listen to our prayers. Open the gates of paradise to your servant and help us who remain to comfort one another with assurances of faith until we all meet in Christ and are with you and with our sister forever. God, you open the gates of paradise. Jane can't open them herself. But our assurance of faith is that we will all meet in Christ and be with you and with our sister Jane again. We say the two things in the same prayer, almost like they're paradoxical side by side. But that is our hope. That's our faith as Christians. When St. Paul says today that we do not grieve as others who have no hope, this is our hope. But what we remember is the reason that it is this, it's this way is because the way to heaven isn't a transaction. It's not, I do this and God will give me the reward. It's not a morality-based reward system that if I do this amount of good things versus this amount of bad things, then I'll pass the test, the balance will be tipped, and I'll be allowed into heaven. It's a relationship. God sent his son into the world to save us from sin and death because he desired to be in relationship with us. The initiation of that relationship is always God first. And we hear that in our reading from the Book of Wisdom today. Whenever you hear a reading from the Book of Wisdom in Scripture, always you hear that wisdom is personified. She's a person. And when you hear wisdom, basically just put in place the name of Jesus. That's what we do in our Christian tradition. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. And we could give a whole other homily on how beautiful the Book of Wisdom is on reflecting on the femininity of God, but you can bug me for that one later. Jesus is wisdom. And listen again in that first reading how wisdom initiates the relationship with the person. When, it, when the author says, wisdom seeks those worthy of her. Wisdom graciously appears to them. And wisdom meets them in every thought. It's wisdom that goes to the person first appearing to them, being with them in thought, and seeking them out. 
But then it also asks for the person's response, that wisdom doesn't just magically appear in someone because it came to them. There has to be a response from the person that is receiving wisdom. This is what the author says on that part. Wisdom is discerned by those who love her. Wisdom is found by those who seek her. And wisdom makes herself known to those who desire her. The response from the other side is the desire and the seeking and the love. And this idea brought to mind to me many interactions with my mother when I was growing up. That I would come to my mom when I was doing homework and I'd go, Mom, what does this word mean? She'd go, look it up. And if I couldn't find it, she would help me. Or I would come to my mom and, Mom, can you do this for me? Did you try? No, try. If you can't do it, I'll help you. Or I'd come, Mom, Richard is bugging me again. He won't stop. Did you ask him to stop? No, but he won't stop. Go ask him to stop. If he doesn't stop, come and get me. Both ways, it comes together. That it's not one-sided. It's not God puts these expectations on us and asks us to fulfill them so one day we can be with him. It already starts now in our relationship with him. So that when we go to God and we say, God, how do I get to heaven? He's going to say, look it up. Read about the faith. Pray. Be in relationship with God through that seeking of him. Or when we go to God and we say, God, can you do this for me? Did you try? Did you participate in my work of grace and redemption in the world? Or when we say, God, the world is bugging me. Take this junk away from me. God's going to go, did you try to contribute to the solution? When you do, I'll help you. But are you going to participate in this with me? In the parable today, there's ten bridesmaids. Five that are wise and five that are foolish. And when we hear what happens to the foolish ones, it sounds kind of harsh to begin with, right? They are with the other five, and when the bridegroom is coming, they don't have their oil, so they ask the other five to share some of their oils. They say, no way. And then when they get to the door, the bridegroom says, I don't know you. I want no part of you. But when we understand what's going on, it changes a bit. In the tradition of understanding this parable, the oil, the flasks of oil, are our good deeds, our devotion to the bridegroom, who is Jesus. And so the five wise virgins, bridesmaids, virgins, maidens, they have their flasks of oil. They've shown their devotion, their love, their good deeds towards the bridegroom. You can't share those with another person. And you know that to be true. I'm sure there are many of you here today who would love to share your relationship with God with friends and family members, but you can't make them have a relationship with God. You can't give them your relationship with God. And so when the foolish bridesmaids come to the wise ones, they go, give us what's yours. Like, we can't. And the other half is, they tell them, go to the merchant and get your own oil. 
They had access to it, and they never did it, which shows that they don't have a desire, they don't have a love for the bridegroom, because they had every opportunity to have the oil ready, and they didn't take it. And then, when they come to the bridegroom, they wonder why they're not able to be let in. It's like, you don't love me. You don't want to be here because you want to be with me. You just don't want to be left out. But here's the hope. The five wise ones were the ones who had their oil at the ready. But when the bridegroom is late, all ten of them fall asleep. None of them stay awake, waiting and ready for him. They all fall asleep. They get worn out. They come up short for trying to live out what is being asked for them. They're supposed to be waiting with their lamps ready for the bridegroom to process with the bridegroom and his bride to their home. That was their role. But they fall asleep, tired, worn out, not vigilant. But they're prepared. Their love is there. Their strength is weak. That's our Christian hope. God doesn't demand us to be perfect to be in heaven. He comes to us anyway while we're asleep. But he does want us to be prepared with our oil, with our love and our devotion for him. He needs us to participate in it. It's not just a guarantee that we are in heaven just because we come to Mass and we're Christian. We need to live a life of love and devotion towards God. And he'll bring us the rest of the way. And that's what we pray for this month of November as we pray for the dead, all of the dead, that they might let the Lord do this for them. When we pray for all of the deceased, we're saying, Lord, remember the good deeds that they have done. Remember that they had their lamps at the ready for you, but they fell asleep. Wake them up and bring them home with you. That's why we pray for the dead that they might allow that grace, that gift of God to be theirs. And we remind ourselves that this is what God desires for us in this life and in the life to come.